Hey everyone, just a quick appeal before we get started on this episode. If you're listening to the Kind Wealth Podcast and you're finding it valuable, it would mean the world to me if you would go into Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it these days, and leave a rating and review. The rating is out of five stars and the review can just be a a one-line comment. It doesn't have to be a lot, but your ratings and your reviews really help us surface in the search results so that other people can find us. Anyway, with that, onto the podcast and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Kind Wealth Podcast. Our mission at Kind Wealth is to democratize access to high-quality, unbiased financial advice. We want to take what's usually been reserved for the wealthy elite and make it accessible to you. So get ready to join us for a series of real, raw, and sometimes uncomfortable conversations about money that are meant to provide you with not only the practical information you need, but also the inspiration and motivation to take control of your money so that you can live life on your own terms. Welcome to episode three of the Kind Wealth Podcast. On today's episode, we have Aaron Bury. Aaron is an entrepreneur, speaker, startup advisor, and former technology journalist. She's the co-founder and CEO at Willful, which is an online estate planning platform that really makes it easy for Canadians to create a will in less than 20 minutes. Prior to Willful, Aaron was managing director at 88, a Toronto-based creative communications agency. And before that, she spent time as managing editor at publication BetaKit. Aaron was named one of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30 marketer influencers. She's a frequent speaker with Speaker Spotlight, and she's appeared in all sorts of publications from the New York Times, Forbes, and CNN. I'm particularly excited about this episode because we cover such a wide range of interesting topics. We start by talking about Willful and the work that they're doing to make it easy and affordable for Canadians to go online and set up a will. We then dive into the more practical aspects of things like why is a will important and what are some of the things that people miss when setting up a will. We talk about ethical wills and what those are. We talk about prenups and why and how you might want one. We also dive into Aaron's relationship with money. She, in her varying roles throughout her life and her experiences, it has had a changing dynamic in her life, from the early messages she received around money and her family growing up, to the role it's played in her relationship with her co-founder husband at Willful. And be sure to stay tuned right to the end where we dive back into the practical again, and Erin shares some of her top tips for couples who go into business together. I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and with that, let's get on to it. So Erin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's our pleasure. We appreciate you joining. So, Erin, why don't we start and just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your role at at Willful? Yeah, so I am the co-founder and CEO at Willful, which is an online estate planning platform that helps Canadians get a will and power of attorney documents online. Uh, In a previous life, uh, for the past decade, I've been working in the startup and technology community in Canada, uh, both as a technology journalist, as well as uh, running an agency working with consumer tech startups. So I am not an estate lawyer by trade. I am very much an entrepreneur and a marketer and uh, have spent a lot of time working with writing about and building companies with great entrepreneurs. Uh, so suffice it to say, you didn't grow up dreaming that you would be helping people get wills. <laughs> no, I was on the cover of, uh, very grateful to be on the cover of Canadian Lawyer Magazine last year. And I can tell you <laughs> when I was getting my journalism degree in the mid 2000s, I, you could have knocked me over with a feather if you told me that would be where I'd be in a decade. That's hilarious. 
Um, so, so just so everybody's sort of clear, right? Like Willful's a place that you can go and it's one of the early technology plays that allowed you to just go online and set up a will entirely online without having to kind of to go see a lawyer. Is that like in person and go into the, you know, into a lawyer's office or go get like a, a will kit from a Walmart, that type of thing. Yeah, we describe it as TurboTax for estate planning. So just like when you use TurboTax, you know, you're not using it. If you're uh, a billionaire, you're probably working with your accountant on your taxes. The same is true for Willful. If you have a simple situation and you find the idea of working with a lawyer or even tackling your estate planning documents really overwhelming, Willful is a way to kind of guide you through that process using plain language and no legalese and to give you the key documents that you need, your will and your POAs uh, for, you know, a fraction of the cost of visiting a lawyer. And right now, because we're in the middle of COVID and everyone's social distancing, uh, it's a way to do that online without having to interact with anyone in person, which I think has, uh, you know, as someone who uses tools like Wealthsimple and a lot of other digital tools for every aspect of my finances, you know, we built Willful to be that missing piece that we saw for estate planning where, you know, you're already doing your taxes and investing and doing all of these other things online. Why can't we do our estate planning online as well? Right. So, so this podcast is really about helping people take control. Ultimately, it's about helping people take control of their money. Um, part of that, big part of that, I think is, and, and it'll be you know, clear to people, I, hopefully in the write-ups of, of what this podcast is, and as we go on longer and longer with it, that you know, the breaking down the taboos around talking about money is a big part of, I think, that process of beginning to be able to take control of, of, of your money. So we're having you on because I think you've got a fascinating story. We share something in common. We both wrote very... Um, revealing and, and uh, uh, pieces for lowestrates.ca about our personal kind of financial histories. Um, and so I know you kind of share that, that value with me in terms of like, you know, us being able to open up, talk about our money is a really important thing. It's important in the context of our end of life planning and setting up a will and all that, being able to have those conversations. So we have that in common. We're going to dive into a lot of that. And I think that for the listeners right now, that's, that's Aaron's here for that. I think it's worth pausing to talk a little bit about the will side of things because part of taking control of your money is not just wrestling with the emotions and being able to start talking about it and then identify your emotions, you know, start to take control over them uh, to some degree and, and reduce your stress, but it's also filling in knowledge gaps. So, you know, one of the things we, we had a lot of questions. I, I do some regular presentations for, um, through mommy connections. It's a group of new moms who come together, um, with their, their newborn, um, uh, babies and they do an activity and usually a learning event, uh, once a week for, you know, a number of weeks. And, uh, and I do this presentation on like, part of it is you need to have a will in place and how many people ever have a will and very few people do. And they have lots of questions about how a will works and what are the things you need to think about. So I want to pause for a little bit, just since we're talking about willful around like, a, what's the importance of having a will? <laughs> and B, um, some of the things that people should be thinking about. Um, so I'm curious, I'd love to hear what, if you had to give your elevator pitch for like, why does somebody need a will? Yeah, I think I was very much the person, you know, a few years ago who didn't know the answer to this question. I knew of wills, I knew the importance of having one in theory, but I probably couldn't have articulated why you actually need one. And the reality is that, 
you know, a will really gives you a voice after you're gone. It allows your family to, to know your wishes. And if you have any sort of assets, that could be $500 in a savings account, that could be an heirloom that you want to be passed on correctly, or that could be, you know, your yacht in the Caribbean. Uh, if you have pets, if you have children or a spouse that you want to make sure are cared for, so you have dependents, people that rely on you. Uh, that's when you should really start thinking about having a will. And if you don't have a will, it means that you're uh, what's called intestate and there's a set of default rules in your province that will dictate how your assets are distributed. So even if that is only $500 in a savings account, uh, that might not go to the person that you would want it to. So having a will is just essentially a way to make sure that the key people in your life are taken care of, that your things go to the people you would want, and most importantly, that your family isn't sitting around arguing about and debating what you would have wanted when you pass away, because that's the last thing they should be doing at what would already be a really difficult time. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, so when I'm in front of the group of new moms who have like their now infant babies in their hands, I sort of skip through a lot of the financial aspects and that's like, that is the primary thing. And the thing that I sort of skip to, cause I'm usually like running low of time, low on time in my presentation. Cause I, I talk too much, <laughs> but uh, it's like, you haven't left instructions to the government for who should take care of your kids. If you were to pass away, like you and your spouse, you and your partner. And that like just immediately captures their attention. And as it would for most parents, like, right, the government's going to try to figure that out. And, you know, you probably know this better than I do, but there's a you know a set of rules in place to help them kind of determine if you haven't instructed who should be the legal guardian for your children after you pass. A number of rules, and it starts with like you know your nuclear people who are closest to you in terms of family members, um, both like you know by by blood, but also by um, by physical proximity, but also things some rules like religious affiliation and like whether you share the same religion may come into play. In a, as a factor, and that may or may not be important to you. And like what I say to everybody is like, you know, you can imagine a scenario where like crazy, you know, Uncle Joe gets the kids, and nobody would have chosen Uncle Joe <laughs> to be the guardian for the kids, but you didn't leave instructions. Yeah, and that and usually so, gets them pretty motivated. A hundred percent. And it's so interesting because I have conversations every week with people who say who should I make my guardian? And listen, we're not giving legal advice at Willful, but even if I could give legal advice, that's a personal decision. You know, someone can tell you based on the, the person's, you know, location and based on their life situation who might make a great guardian, but it's really an emotional decision. And what we see too often is paralysis because, you know, the husband uh, or one spouse wants it to go to their brother and the other one just wants it to go to their sister, but nobody wants it to go to the mother-in-law. And I always say, you know, put someone there, even if it's not the perfect choice, because, yeah. uh, you know, the worst case scenario is that you get paralyzed for years, you don't put anybody. And then to your point, it's crazy Uncle Joe who ends up with the kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, have you, what was I going to, have you ever heard of, um, ethical wills? I have. Yeah. They're more the, the kind of living will companion. I'm not hundred percent sure on, on what's included. I in and then people, will. I think people call them different things. So, you know, I, I may have heard this term and it may not be used all that widely. I don't know, but it, my, like what I'm talking about is this idea that you would, you could write down your, your essentially your values, like what it's all the non-financial information. So the will is, here's what I want to happen to my money. And then obviously the guardian stuff, an ethical will is like, 
here's what's important to me. Here's what I cared about, what mattered to me. And like, it could be a video. So it's not like really a legally binding document. You're just sharing with your family member, all those things that your will isn't trying to capture because that's not what it's designed to do. And so when then when somebody passes and you're like, what would dad have wanted or what would mom have wanted or like, you know, because like, Hey, it may just be a video. Like, Hey, it's really important to me that all my grandkids, you know, go to university and, or whatever, or that, you know, you carry on our tradition of this or that, or like whatever. And so like, that's really a nice thing to have, you know, like otherwise everybody sits around and says, well, dad would have wanted this or mom would have wanted that. And you might have differing opinions on that. And this is just like, this is more for like peace of mind and for like, I don't know, just like something to remember, you know, your, your, your kids who may be too young to know your their grandparents might end up watching this one day and like getting to know their, their grandparents and you just sort of store this away with, with a will. Um, and I just love the thought of it. I love the idea that you, you can pass along other lessons and other things that you want people to know. Um, either you know, write it in, in a journal or you record a video and, and, and save that. Anyway. A hundred percent. I mean, that's kind of the idea for willful really came from, um, Kevin, my co-founder and husband, his uncle passed away and he had a will. He had checked off the boxes of where does my stuff go, but he hadn't discussed any of that other stuff. So it was while Kevin's family was sitting around arguing about whether uncle Dave would have wanted to be cremated or buried and what he would have wanted to wear. And, um, all of the things that you talked about, what traditions were important to him and the stories, those are the things that you never include in your will because they're not the legally binding aspects of it. But uh, those are the things that can often be more important to your family. So I think we started with the will knowing that it's uncomfortable and difficult to get people to think about and talk about death. So if we can use the will as an entry point, hopefully we can build out this other suite of services that help you do exactly that. Not only capture the ancillary information outside of a will that your family would need to wrap up your life, but also help you capture your legacy. Because to your point, you know, I don't know those details about my grandparents and they've passed on. And how amazing would it be if I had a video talking about them talking about their favorite traditions and their favorite family recipe and what their first job was and all of those details that are kind of lost in when your generations uh, transition, right? So uh, all of those things are kind of the long-term goal of the company, but I think the crux of it is how do you get Canadians to just take the baseline step of getting these legal documents in place considering over half of us don't have them? Right. So um, that's a, so take it as a, 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 product feature request for, for some day to be able to like let people record a video while they're doing their will. That would be amazing. Um, (laughs) I know you've got no shortage, I'm sure of feature requests. So, um, uh, but, um, in case people are feeling, so most of these listeners just by like pure kind of statistics and, uh, and odds do not have a will, right? How many Canadians, you know, the number off the top of your head, what percentage of Canadians have a will? It's 57% of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 89% amongst millennials. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's, that's 100% consistent with what we see, you know, from our clientele, which is a younger demographic. You know, most don't have a will in place when they come to us. And it's usually around the time that you have kids. But even then, like, it's years later that you start to think about having a will rather than, like, immediately once you have a child. So anyway, to the extent that anybody's listening and feeling bad about not having a will in place, don't, you're not alone, but do something about it. (laughs) Um, And just lastly, I want to jargon bust as much as possible. You mentioned 
helping, you know, setting up a will and POAs. So talk about power of attorneys. What is it? Why is it yeah. Important? So it's uh, power of attorney adheres to when you're still alive, but you're unable to communicate due to illness or injury. Uh, so a power of attorney would never come into effect at the same time as a will. A will only comes into effect when you pass away. A power of attorney is only in effect when you're alive but unable to communicate. And it appoints someone to make financial or medical decisions on your behalf, which is really key, you know, uh, knowing that a lot of us, I personally, for example, wouldn't want to be kept on life support for 10 years if I didn't really have a hope of meaningful recovery. And this gives you a way to actually communicate your wishes clearly or to just assign that power to somebody who you, whom you trust and whom you know would have your best interests at heart. And um, you know, we, we've been giving away a lot of plans to healthcare workers during COVID because a lot of these healthcare workers are being urged to get their wills and POAs in place uh, because of their exposure. But a lot of these doctors and healthcare workers have been coming out and writing op-eds and urging Canadians to get power of attorneys in place because they face situations daily where people are coming through their hospitals who don't have power of attorney in place and their family members are distraught about, you know, what would Uncle Joe have wanted, uh, you know, while he's lying there and unable to communicate that. So again, it goes back to your point of, people put off these conversations. I mean, people put off conversations about money in general, as we're going to talk about, um, or are uncomfortable talking about it. But these are the conversations that are the most difficult. Hey, would you want to be the plug pulled if something happened? Would you want to, you know, and it's really tough to think about, but these are the decisions now that are going to empower your family if and when anything happens. And listen, with a will, I hate to break it to listeners, it's going to come into effect. Unless you're immortal and you discover the fountain of youth, you are going to pass away. And I hope it's when you're 99 and you live a great full life. Power of attorney may never come into effect. It's like car insurance. It's like car insurance. You hope you don't get in an accident. You hope your home doesn't burn down, but you buy home insurance anyways. And that's essentially power of attorney. Hopefully it never has to come to the point where someone is actually, you know, taking on that power. But if so, it's there. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for, for listening to my, my mom passed away last year and, uh, we, she, a very unexpected cancer and she ended up passing pretty quickly, but we had this period of time with her that after we found out she, um, you know, we had weeks with her, you know, and, and it happened that, that quickly that we only had weeks, but you know, it was such an incredible blessing to be able to, to know that she didn't have much time and start to talk about and have those conversations about all those things that you didn't talk about before. And so I feel, you know, incredibly sad, obviously, but incredibly lucky that we got this invaluable period of time to like, you know, on a personal note, say the things that I wanted to say to my mom that I, you know, that I didn't, but, but, um, but from a financial perspective, right. Like a, around like, you know, my mom and dad sitting down and they had a will in place already and they had, you know, they had talked about and thought about, but they hadn't really, we hadn't talked about those things with them. And we got to share that as a family and really talk those things through. And it was really, um, as I say, really, really fortunate, really lucky because it just, it removed a lot of possible arguments and debates and things like that, that, that might, you know, we might not have, you know, or we might have encountered had we not. And so like putting a will in place forces you to have, some of those discussions with your partner, with potentially your kids, 
if you want to share that with them. So, you know, my advice is, is to have these conversations and they're not fun conversations. Some people really don't like to talk about negative things, bad things happening, but it's just so, so important. And you never know when it's going to happen and when you're going to need to, you know, have to have had those or, or if you're not going to have the opportunity, right. Again, like life can change on a heartbeat. So uh, this is just more of an emotional plea to people to, to have those conversations and talk about it. And, and on that note, you guys have a really interesting uh, set of cards, right? You've tried to create a bit of a board game out of a board game, but a, yeah, a game out of uh, to maybe talk about those cards. You'll do a better job of it than me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. I know that uh, that must've been really tough to go through, but to your point, really nice that you were able to say all those things. And, um, and yeah, I, I think our goal with Willful, again, is not just to help people record the the legal stuff. It's also to encourage these conversations with family members. You know, I know personally, the only time that Kevin and I really talk about this stuff or would have without running willful would be when you leave a funeral home because you've just attended a funeral and you're thinking about it. And in the car ride on the way home, you talk quickly about it, but you don't really record it anywhere. And then you're hoping that you remember it if you actually need that information. We're trying to change that behavior from you know, only reflecting on it when you absolutely need to and not actually writing it down to helping people answer the questions around, you know, what are the traditions I would want to be continued? Uh, What are the wishes that I would have? Do I want a wake or a funeral? And what do I want that to feel like? And recording those, whether that's in a journal or uh, hopefully through Willful eventually so that you um, you can actually have that when you need it. And that's the purpose of the cards is just, you know, at Thanksgiving or when you're, you know, on your next family Zoom, take 10 minutes and talk about that stuff, you know, maybe tackle one question every time you're with your family to hopefully build up this repository of those answers. And, uh, you know, hopefully that sparks the, the types of conversations that you were unfortunately forced to have because of your situation, but others uh, probably could have without necessarily having a specific reason to. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of creating that impetus to, to, to have that conversation when otherwise life is busy and nobody wants to have that conversation. Um, can I ask you one last question? And I want to, and then I want to talk about the work you're doing around the frontline healthcare workers uh, and our initiative, um, providing pro bono financial consultations, um, and then dive into your story because you've got a just really fascinating story. But um, people, I have an answer for this. I'm curious what your answer is. Like people say, can like, do I need to? Can I just get a will kit? Can I just do it online? Do I need to go to a lawyer? How do you help people kind of navigate? When, when an online will is right, when a, a will kit is right, when a lawyer is right, writing it down on a piece of paper themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've always been very open about the fact that there are, you know, millions and millions of Canadians who have not taken this step. There are more than enough people who will use us versus other folks. So our mission is always to help you get a will, regardless of whether that's with us. Uh, there are lots of people who should be going to a lawyer because either they want that custom legal advice and they just want to be able to ask questions and get advice specific to their situation, or they have a bit of complexity. You know, maybe they have a business and they want to set up uh, what's called a dual will to separate those assets. Maybe they, you need a specific trust because you have a dependent with the disability. I mean, there are numerous situations that would lead you to want to get the advice of a lawyer. And we're the first people to say, Hey, listen, you have a bit of complexity. Go talk to to a lawyer. Uh, And we don't really see ourselves competing with lawyers. If you're the kind of person that's going to spend $1,500 on a will with a lawyer, you're probably not the same person who's looking to come and spend $99 with us. So 
Um, and same with a, a holograph will or a will kit. If you, you know, it's very legal to just take a pen and write your wishes on a piece of paper and sign that. It's called a holograph will. It is 100% free. It's probably not going to be as comprehensive as something that's created with us or with the lawyer, but that's okay. If your budget is $0, it's absolutely viable and it's way better than just not doing anything at all. Same with a will kit from Staples. Spending 20 bucks on one of those, um, sure, maybe not as comprehensive. Uh, maybe not as tailored to your situation, but absolutely a great way to get it done. So I would start by thinking about how complex your your situation is. Do you have just you know pets, children, some assets in Canada? Then you probably have a simple situation. Uh, and then thinking about the cost that you'd like to spend. If it's zero, that gives you a pretty good indication. Holograph will is right for you. Uh, and if it's you know I, I actually want to spend the money to get this done as comprehensively as possible, then you're probably going to the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I kind of frame it like: listen, writing it on a piece of paper is better than nothing. The problem with writing it on a piece of paper is if you're not. You think you're being clear about what you want to happen and you're not. Your people are going to be confused and they won't be able to execute your wishes. It also leaves more room for somebody to contest it, right? If in your family, if they, if you are leaving any meaningful amount of assets or even things that are just, as you say, not valuable financially, but are important emotionally like heirlooms and people want to contest it, it if it's not written by a lawyer, there's a greater probability that you haven't been a, crystal clear from, a, you know, uh, on what you intended. And so then people can contest it. And so, um, and then as you mentioned, the, as you have more complications in your situation, it becomes, there's more and more of a case to have uh, a, maybe a lawyer be involved, but going to a, a will kit is better than writing it on a visa paper, having a, an online will where you've got lawyers who have seen all the, you know, is probably even better. And then, you know, having a lawyer, you know, if you've got a lot of complications, could, you know, is, is sometimes absolutely vital. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different people with a lot of different circumstances. Um, but if you have nothing in place, <laughs> do something as opposed to nothing. It's way, way better uh, than just sitting around and, and being paralyzed by a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about uh, the, you're giving away the, the front, the free wills right now to health kind frontline healthcare workers, which is amazing. Um, and then we have a pro bono uh, financial consultations that we're offering with a whole bunch of partners, other financial planners who um, we're just helping people who are struggling financially right now as a result of um, COVID-19. And if you are interested in that, um, the I'll put the link in the show notes. If you are struggling right now financially and you want some financial advice for how you're going to kind of make it through this, uh, you can visit that web page. Um, but we, uh, Aaron uh, and I were, were chatting about it and she had offered um, a number of free wills for people who are coming through that and in financial need, don't have a will in place and it's important that they do. Um, you can access a free will through that, which is amazing. So thank you uh, for that. Of course. Um, well, thanks for even launching that initiative. No, it's my pleasure. And you've done how many frontline healthcare workers now? Uh, over 2000, which is great. So awesome. yeah, we've, uh, it was really a response to, to two things. I've, I've chatted with you uh, before about how, you know, we have seen an uptick in traffic and sales at Willful. So I think number one, it was a way to feel like at a time when we might be, you know, doing well as a company and others aren't a way for us to 
to, to do something good and to, to, to give back. And then, you know, the second reason is we actually had a lot of doctors and nurses reach out saying we're urging our staff to actually get these documents in place because they're high risk. So it was a direct response to hospital administrators and doctors and nurses saying we're being urged to get these things in place and, and we don't have a lot of time to necessarily set up lawyers appointments and, uh, and we need to get this done quickly. So, um, yeah, for us, it was just a way to, to give back without, you know, manufacturing PPE and all the things that you don't really have the ability to do when you're a digital product company. And uh, similar to your initiative for, for giving pro bono advice, I think it's just a, a way that we can hopefully uh, provide value at a time when a lot of people are struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so let's segue a little bit. We, I read an amazing piece you wrote for lowestrates.ca. Um, talking about your journey with, with money in particular, it focused a lot on kind of the relationship. Um, you know, uh, so f- you mentioned this, I think briefly in passing, but for the listeners listening, um, Aaron is the CEO of Willful and uh, your husband is the C what's his title again? Uh, I think he's now head of product. Uh, his title changes all, you know, you wear many hats at a startup, but co-founder. Yeah. And essentially was responsible for kind of the, the initial idea and doing a lot of the initial programming I'm imagining. Uh, yeah, he, he hired a developer, but he was responsible for all the initial lawyer partnerships and, uh, and getting it launched. Okay. So you've got this dynamic though in your relationship where he started this, he, you were working in PR and so the financial dynamics have been changing and then you joined the, the firm and now you're both entrepreneurs. And so this, navigating this, these ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey, both you having a partner who's an entrepreneur, but then you becoming an entrepreneur yourself and joining a startup and having that, um, that dynamic. We also talked a little bit before the, or previous to the show about, um, kind of your your upbringing with money. I'd just be curious for you to share your, like, I think you've just got a fascinating story around money and your relationship with it. And to the extent uh, you're, you're, you're happy to talk about any of those aspects, like from the upbringing through to the relationship side, like just the different emotions you've had around money and the kind of lessons you've learned around it over time. Um, maybe uh, we can start wherever you want, but if you want to start maybe even with your upbringing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I love talking about this stuff. I think we have a similar approach to sharing vulnerable things uh, and how it hopefully serves uh, raising just the the level of conversation about this stuff. And yeah, I definitely had a, a unique upbringing with money because uh, my parents divorced when I was two and they had a very amicable divorce and are still, you know, friendly all these years later. Uh, but I grew up living in two households and I lived primarily with my mom uh, in, uh, you know, just west of Toronto. And she was a marketing executive at Nortel. And she remarried uh, my stepdad, whom she met working at Nortel. So they were both kind of marketing executives at Nortel in the 90s when Nortel was having its heyday. So, you know, I grew up in that household. I would say, you know, upper middle class, pretty spoiled kid. Uh, only child. And, you know, this was the time where there was massive gift baskets showing up every Christmas from Nortel and bonuses out the wazoo and stock options that were promised to get us, you know, cottages and trips to Disney World. And I definitely grew up in a very fortunate financial situation there. Uh, And then on the flip side, 
I had a great relationship still do with my dad and would go visit him. And he was a small town uh, newspaper journalist and a community newspaper journalist is not making the salary of a Nortel marketing executive, but he loved his job. He absolutely loved being a journalist. He was like a celebrity in Belleville, Ontario, which is where he he lived and we'd go to the mall and everyone knew him. And, um, you know, he really taught me number one, the value of loving what you do and finding a profession that you just find to be an absolute joy every day. And number two, living within your means, because, you know, he was someone who, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of credit cards and really just kind of spent within his means, didn't, was totally happy with what he had. And, just showed me that you don't need a lot of material things to be happy in life. Um, and so it was really interesting going back and forth between this kind of, um, you know, high flying salary and world of this corporate excess and then going to the flip side, which was, you know, really just being happy with a little bit and kind of loving what you do. And um, it was this interesting dichotomy. And I think the reason I didn't end up a spoiled brat is because I had this example every time I went to my dad's house of, yeah, we don't, we turn off the heat and we don't, we wear sweaters because the hydro bill is expensive and no, you can't go on uh, five more rides at the fair because our budget was $40 for rides and you've hit that budget. Um, So I think it actually gave me a really balanced view of money. And it was even more helpful when Nortel you know, crapped out, right? I think uh, those days of my mom not having to worry about money and me having a credit card and going to the mall and buying whatever I wanted and there not really being any consequences, those really ended quickly when Nortel tanked because, um, you know, a lot of my family's wealth was tied up in stock options and disappeared overnight. And both my mom and my stepdad uh, took buyouts from the company and found themselves looking for jobs at a time when they were already later in their careers. And they struggled to find additional work and had to tap into, you know, some of their savings. And that, that really kind of was an equalizer that um, I, I think highlighted to me the importance of not counting stock options as money and also highlighted the importance of, um, you know, things can change in, in a moment and your financial picture uh, might be perfect one day, but the importance of planning for the future and having, I mean, COVID has highlighted the importance of having an emergency fund. So anyways, I think the two big lessons that I learned growing up were, um, you know, to live within your means and the importance of not living on credit and also the importance of planning for the future and understanding that your situation might be great now, but it'll change. It inevitably will because either your company will change or the market will, and you need to be prepared for that. So those were uh, some, some fun days uh, after Nortel. And luckily my, my stepdad's now retired. My mom runs her own PR consulting business. My dad is retired and they're all, you know, happy as clams and, and doing well financially as well as one can be during, uh, during COVID. But, uh, but yes. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, I uh, I think like I, I your part comments around like stock options not being you know money um, and not sort of not being the same as I mean until you execute it right um, and 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 get that cash in hands and you sell those options. Um, I, I that sense of risk, like I, there's a few things I'm stumbling over my words here a little bit because I'm, uh, there's a few things I, I want to sort of share. I mean, one is I had, like, I think, I hope that we get out of this 
situation with COVID and people kind of take the lesson from it in terms of things can go wrong and they can go wrong in a lot of different ways. And I'm worried a little bit that the takeaway from this is, well, it was a global pandemic. Nobody could have saw it coming. We were all in this together. It was nothing anybody could have done about this. And so that wasn't like a risk that we, in the sense of like, what could I have done differently with my finances? Should I have had an emergency fund? Or if I was an entrepreneur and I was over leveraged or whatever, those risks that I took on and this created now, you know, a terrible situation. You don't sort of exit this going, well, there was nothing that anybody could have done about it. So I wouldn't do anything differently again. Um, Because risk can look like a lot of different things. And it's risk is always like that, that thing that you just wouldn't have expected in a million years. And then it happens. And you'd say, well, that, that won't happen again, or, or that was a one-off and we couldn't have controlled it. But like, in the it could have it could have looked like a lot of different things and those the, that is the point of, of risk and, and that is the point of like preparing for it and managing it is to mitigate and not leave yourself exposed to those types of situations so like you know i i've had conversation like my my approach i had um i think people will know this now because I've, I've come out with some story around my bankruptcy and how i was you know i was making investments some of which were very aggressive and risky but some of which were like uh, you know, investing in a dogs of the Dow strategy. And that strategy is the Dow Jones is the biggest 30 companies in the United States. And the dogs of the Dow says you buy the, 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 the stocks of those top 30 that are, that have done the worst because it's one of the largest companies in the United States. It's not going to go bankrupt. It'll rebound. It'll come back. And so you want to buy the ones that are doing the worst. Cause then when they rebound, you'll, you know, they have the best opportunity to appreciate. And I ended up buying Bethlehem steel in 19, 19- 99 or 2000, whatever it was. And steel in 2000 was like basically on its way out. The company went bankrupt. So like, here you are with this, like, oh yeah, right. This is, it's not going to go under. It's such a big company. It can't, it can't lose. It can't fail. I think a lot of people felt that way about Nortel in 1999. It was, I think at one point made up something like 20% of the entire TSX in that ballpark. It was such a high flying stock. Um, And so anyway, just appreciating that risk can come and it can look like a lot of different things. And you just need to prepare yourself for that. Like, well, that'll never happen. There's never say never. (laughs) And what, what if it does happen and how do you prepare yourself for it? Well, there's two sides to that, right? There's how do you prepare yourself for a risk? And a risk might be your company that you think could never tank tanking. It could also be, you know, a, a personal situation. So my dad went through a second divorce uh, when I was about nine years old, I believe. And that made him take a big financial hit because that was something he wasn't necessarily expecting. And divorce is expensive no matter what, not just because of the lawyers, but because of splitting assets. And, um, you know, that was something that you, you can't necessarily predict and you hope won't happen. Uh, and then there's the other side of being realistic when things are on the way down. I mean, I think the thing that my mom regrets isn't being part of the Nortel journey. That's the highlight of her career and she loved every minute of it. I think what she regrets is not selling her stock at a hundred and, you know, it was at $128 and then not selling it when it was at 70 because she thought the same thing as you. There's no way that this will go to zero. It'll rebound one day, right? So it's not the regret of being part of that company. It's the regret of not believing and maybe hoping a little too much that it wouldn't go to zero and, and being able to extract some of the value from that. Yeah. 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 That's uh, well said. Um, so it's continuing on your journey here. You've, so now you're, 
you've had those kind of money experiences growing up. You entered, you, you went into PR after doing a you said journalism degree. You worked in PR. So see, these are like salaried jobs. You've got sort of steady income. You're now, um, you know, I don't know if you're married at the time, but who's now your, your husband and he's starting up a business and you're the breadwinner. This is the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to note too, that I didn't even know entrepreneurship was a a path that you could take in life when I was younger. I mean, I, again, I had these examples of parents who worked at Nortel, a parent who was a journalist and worked for Thompson Media, the biggest media company in the country at the time. Uh, I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. And this was not the time when it was sexy to be a startup founder. This was like the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s when the dot-com boom had just, or bust had just happened, as you know. And, uh, and we didn't have people like Sarah Blakely at Spanx who were making it cool to be an entrepreneur, right? So uh, I very much graduated school and my goal was to make six figures and to have a corner office. I wanted to be just like my mom. I wanted to work in marketing. Um, and I remember uh, I got hired about a year out of school when I was working at a PR agency. I got hired by an entrepreneur who was a mutual friend. And that was really my first introduction to the startup space. And my mom was the one who said, you know, take the risk, go work at a startup. You can always get your job back at the PR agency. You can always go get a job at a big company, but take the risk now. I'll be forever grateful for, to her for actually encouraging me to take that leap. And I remember a couple of weeks into my job at this startup, I was the second employee. There was three of us. And I told Sarah, my, my now mentor and friend, who was my boss for many years, uh, my goal, my dream in life. And I, I thought I was being vulnerable and, you know, telling her this big thing, like my goal is to make six figures and to have this corner office. And she laughed in my face and said, that is the, that is way lower than the bar that you should be setting for yourself. And like, wow, I hope I can help you redefine what the pinnacle of success means in your life. And I was so mad at her in the moment, but now I look back and I think that that goal, uh, you know, is obviously not aligned with where my life has gone. So I'll be forever grateful to her for opening up my eyes to entrepreneurship, for taking the risk to go work in startups. Uh, but I'm not a born entrepreneur. Whereas Kevin, my husband, has always been that guy who has ideas. He's just the consummate, what if I did this? And well, what if this, what if I built a company that sold these random shoes? And he actually called me the dream killer for many years because he would come home with these ideas and I'd be like, that is the single dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. You're not launching a company that makes boat shoes. Like, no. Um, but it was one of those days when he came home again after his uncle had passed away and he said, you know, I think that there's an opportunity. There's some companies in other countries that are making estate planning easy online. There's no one that's doing it really well in Canada. I think I could be that person. And it was the first time that I didn't kill the dream. I did say that's pretty not sexy. Are you sure that you want to start an estate planning company? But I said, yeah, I think there's actually something here. Um, and to your point, that brought us to the point where I kind of gave him my blessing to uh, leave his job, launch this company, take $0 for a while and to actually try to make it work. And I don't think I realized at the time when I gave him that blessing that you know, this would be much longer than a year journey and that it would kind of, you know, it would be a tough journey for us. It led to, you know, this was in 2015 and for up until, so his first paycheck that he took from the business was March 1st of uh, this year or the first paycheck, I guess would have been March 15th. So after from 20, long? after basically five years, uh, 
Um, now he took other jobs through that time to bring in money, part-time jobs, and he has a trades background. So doing some, some jobs to, to kind of supplement income. But yeah, what I thought would be, you know, he would launch this company and within a year he'd be taking a regular salary turned into five years later, finally deciding to take money from the company. And, uh, and so I think the process of that went from me being the breadwinner, having my agency and kind of paying all the bills. During this time, we also got married. So obviously trying to pay for a wedding and a honeymoon. And I was doing paid speaking on the side. So like flying around to every small town in Canada to make extra money on the side. Uh, And it wasn't that I resented him becoming an entrepreneur. I love that. That's the thing I love most about him is that he's a risk taker. He's creative. He has ideas. But it did get to a place where I resented the burden of the finances being on me and just feeling like I had to hold it all together. I had to pay our bills. I had to pay for the wedding. I had to, um, you know, basically just hold that all together. That's where the resentment came from. And, you know, there was some tough times where we would argue about it and I would just feel like this burden couldn't be lifted. And he would say, well, we're on a good path and Willful's launching soon and we're going to do well. And I just kind of had to put that trust in it. And he was working really hard on this company, but it wasn't actually coming in and paying the bills. And, uh, when I joined the company, um, I decided to move on from the agency and join Willful full time as, as co-founder and CEO in early of 2019. And it's so funny, David, how this flip just switched. Like I, or the switch flipped. Um, I had gone from pushing him, when can you take money from the business? When can you take money from the business? To then coming into the business and saying, oh my God, we should hold off on paying ourselves as long as possible because there's so much we could do and we really need to hire this person and we should be spending that on on the business. And um, I really just completely changed my mindset overnight from you need to start taking money from this business to, wow, let's invest every extra dollar that we have into growing this business and we'll find a way to make it work personally. Um, and yeah, the last year we've probably been more, I don't want to say poor because that's not a great word to use. We've, we've been our least liquid that we have for our entire 13 year relationship but we've never been happier because we're building this company together and it's a real challenge and we're employing people and paying their bills and doing what we always dreamed of doing. And we know that there is delayed gratification to that in that um, you kind of have to make sacrifices. So anyways, a very long winded story, all that to say uh, there's there, you know, for anyone listening who is going to start a business, who wants to, who has a spouse, who wants to start a business, you know, it's not going to be an easy road, but at the end of it, I think the best gift that you can give someone in life is allowing them to follow their dreams and live their passion. And I feel that that's the gift that I, that I gave Kev. And I think he's very grateful for that. Yeah. I want to, I want to dive into this a little bit, because I think this is really important. Um, I mean, as a, as a, you know, entrepreneur building kind wealth, I, I, a lot of what you're talking about resonates I, on maybe from the from the flip side, and I can imagine my wife probably shares a lot of the same feelings as you. I mean, from your perspective, and, and, and in my case, my wife's like, she she's in the case where like she's just got to hold her breath, and like it's like I'm asking. I imagine I, I visualize it like we're gonna we're swimming, and I'm like, hey, like we got to dive under, and there's like a tunnel that we got to go through here, and like I think we're gonna make it through that tunnel. I think it's like I think I can get us through that but I need to just hold your breath with me. We're going to go under and, and take the risk. I mean, and the, and the analogy is like, we're starting a business. I'm not going to have any income and we're going to have to just suck that up. And I hope that I can grow this business fast enough 
that, you know, we don't run a financial runway <laughs> before, you know, I can get this thing profitable that we can actually draw an income from it, but I can't promise it, but I feel like I can do it. I've got a lot of conviction in it. And when she's not involved in the business, like actually day to day and part of it, it's like, okay, great. So I'm going to, we're going to take all my money and pay all the bills. And I don't have any, what if I get sick of my job or I want to leave? I don't really have any choice now. I'm tied to it. And I'm just going to trust you that we're going to make it out the other side. Like, and she's been amazing. I'm really, really lucky, but it's a big, big thing to, for somebody to take on. Um, so I, I, I think that's a really important dynamic to, for, for all, you know, people in a relationship to think about um, no matter who's the one kind of doing it, like that it's a big, big thing of your partner. And it struck me as you were talking, like, you know, it sounds like there was a bit of, and, and this makes a lot of sense to me, like him vetting, like, Hey, is this like, what do you think of this? A probably cause he respects your opinion, but also like B you've got to be on board. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, there certainly was, um, a, because I had spent, you know, years working with tech entrepreneurs. So I felt he felt like I had a good framework for saying, does this have the elements of a business that could be successful? But, but yeah, I mean, he couldn't quit his job without my blessing because you just don't do that when you're in a partnership with someone. And I think there was also this added emotional weight to his decision, which was that his uncle um, unfortunately killed himself. And, you know, it's not something that we talk about really publicly in the media or things like that. But I think it's important to share here because he worked at the same cement plant as his uncle. And when that happened, he looked at that and thought, said, I don't want to I don't want that to be me in 30 years. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be the person that's unhappy in 30 years and that does something like that. I've got to quit my job. He already didn't like the job. And that to me, it was a catalyst, not just of, mm. I, here's what I want to do next, but it was, I have, I can't be on the same path because he saw the writing on the wall of what might happen to him if he stayed in a job that he didn't love just because it was good money. Right. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't just give my blessing because I wanted him to start the business. I gave my blessing because I thought that was best for his mental health. And regardless of whether it was willful that he did next, it, he had to do something different or yeah, maybe he would end up in the same situation, right? So sometimes leaving your job isn't just a financial decision. It's, it's a mental health thing as well, right? And, um, and yeah, I mean, you have to, I think there's definitely resentment that's going to exist no matter what. Kevin was resentful of the situation because he felt like he couldn't even go to winners and buy a $20 shirt without asking me. And regardless of whether he knew why there was still resentment to that, right? Having to basically ask your, your fiance or your girlfriend or your wife for $20 to go buy a pizza. Like that doesn't feel great. And then there was resentment on my side where it's, I'm holding this all together and yeah, I see you working, but do I really know what you're doing day to day? Similar to what you were saying with your wife, maybe not. So um, I think that exists no matter what. And through it all, I always said to him, and I will always say to him, I don't care whether willful makes us millionaires. I don't care whether the company is ultimately successful in the mission. What I care about is that I'm married to someone who takes risks and who is entrepreneurial and who isn't happy with staying at a job that they hate and collecting a paycheck for the rest of their life. My ultimate doom is being with someone who's complacent and unhappy. And regardless of whether willful successful, you've already shown me you're not that person. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, it's, that's right. It's it certainly come up in our conversations uh, with Mel around like she wants me to not, to, she wants me to have the opportunity to, 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 
to make it work. And because if not, she worries about, you know, me always wondering what if, and I think wondering, I've always said I'd, I'd much rather regret something and fail at something than to wonder what if, um, and, uh, and, and she agrees with that. And so that, that's an important part of the dynamic. Um, I'm curious, it, just as sort of a separate discussion point, but every relationship's different. Um, when, when you were earning income at that time and, you know, Kevin was not, do you guys view your money as uh, like, do you, my parents always maintained separate bank accounts and they didn't have a prenup or anything, but they just, they had their own bank accounts and they had their own income going to their own bank accounts and they shared but they were very particular to like keep the income part separate and then share, you know, and then like agree to split the percentages. But it was always like this sort of ongoing agreement. Whereas Mel and I just, it's just one big pot of money in, in our heads. And so there's, I didn't feel any, I don't feel any like, Oh, I can't spend money on this thing because we just have this understanding. I'm curious in your, what's the dynamic in your relationship? Yeah, well, it changed a lot, right? I think marriage was really the catalyst that made us view it as one big pot. And now that's certainly the case. And actually a hilarious story about prenups. So, um, you know, the Prince Edward County home I'm sitting in right now, I put the down payment on that. And so I went to, you know, a family lawyer prior to us getting married with Kev's blessing to get a prenup. And we sat down and ultimately after the discussions realized that at the time that we got the, we were looking at getting the prenup, Kevin, because of willful, was worth way more on paper than me. And actually, it was in my best interest to not get a prenup. And that was kind of a good, like, I think that was a full circle moment for him where he was like, booyah, like, I'm worth more than you now. Exactly. Um, So we actually didn't end up getting a prenup just because we both had assets on both sides that were valuable. Um, And now we kind of, we have really looked at it as one big pot of money. We have a joint account now. and and we we look at it more as our money but i'm going to be honest that <laughs> mental switch from my money my down payment that bought my condo to our money and our assets and even if i put money down in the beginning you're going to get half of it like i don't know that took a little bit of mental yeah, adjustment sure. to get to um especially because both of us have divorced parents so yep while we have been together for 13 years and we absolutely plan to be together for the rest of our lives, we're also realists and we know that sometimes things don't work out. So I think for both of us, it's been, you know, it's hard to think about like the work that you put into something automatically just getting split with someone just because of this piece of paper, but Hey, that's what marriage is. And I think we've now uh, just decided that what's mine is his and what's his is mine. Just like you. And but it's great that you had that. You, you, you've had like very frank discussions about this stuff. I think that's like really important. I think that's better than, no, no, I'm too afraid to talk about a prenup. And and I didn't, we didn't do that. We fell into this and it, and it works for us, but it's not how I think people should go about it. I think it, it, it would be better to just be like, Hey, is, is a prenup something, you know, even offering to the other person is something that's important to you. Do you feel like you need it if they're afraid to ask for it, but not to have these again in line with the, the idea about opening up and having co- real conversations and not being like breaking this taboo. Cause I think that's a, that's an unhealthy taboo to say like, oh, if I ask for it, that's going to think that I don't love them and that I am not committed and all that. Like, it just, I, the world would be, certainly, I understand why that exists, but the world would certainly be a much better place if we could all just talk about that dispassionately and, and it not to be seen as. <laughs> 100%. Well, and to be honest, I feel the same way about prenups as I do about estate planning. There's a lot of misinformation. I mean, yeah. I, I'm going to be honest. I walked 
into a family lawyer's office two days before our wedding to get a prenup and was informed that you can't get a prenup two days before your wedding. Uh, The judge would view that as you doing it under duress. You have to get it months in advance and that you also both need a lawyer representing you on each side. You can't just go to one lawyer and get one. So I learned a lot about the misinformation that I had in my own head around them uh, and about the, the actual process. And to your point, I said to Kevin, Yes, I want a prenup because I put all this money into things, but I don't want it because I think I'm going to leave the relationship. I'm getting it because I can't control your actions. You might leave me for a younger woman when you're 50, mm-hmm. and guess what? I can't control that. So mm-hmm. I think b- getting a prenup is not because you're indicating that you think the relationship is going to fall apart. It's realizing that there are two people, and you can't control the other person's outcome, and it's protecting yourself. And if we reframed prenups in that way where you know it's recognizing that 50% of the outcome of the relationship is not controlled by you, then it actually is a lot more of a friendly thing. And my lawyer called them a marriage contract, which I think if we just rebranded prenups as marriage contracts, I think it would be much friendlier. Yeah. Prenup has a lot of baggage with it. They should just ditch the word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, it's like how I feel life insurance has a much better branding than, than wills, right? Uh, life insurance just sounds friendlier. It's not yeah. death insurance. Yeah, that's right. That's a hundred percent. They definitely could have chose to call it death insurance <laughs> and that wouldn't have been uh, very good for sure. Um, so, uh, I'm in the interest of, of, of time, we'll, we'll sort of start to, to wind down here. Do you have any um, thoughts on just like tips for people if they're thinking about going into business with a partner? Ooh, great question. Um, well, I think you've seen from this conversation that Kevin and I are pretty open and honest about talking about everything. Um, and I would say the biggest tip I would have, whether you're going into business with a spouse or a friend or a family member is to have those discussions about every possible outcome and to also discuss what you want out of the business. You know, um, Kevin and I are so aligned on what our ideal outcome is for willful, what we want to get from the process, which is not riches, it's learning and growing a business together. Um, but a lot of people are misaligned. One person wants it to be a high growth company that nets them millions of dollars. And the other person wants a lifestyle business that just gives them a good quality of life. Uh, and then also to talk about what the potential outcomes are if one person leaves the business or if one person passes away, having things like key person life insurance, uh, having clauses in your shareholder agreements that dictate, you know, vesting of your founder shares over time and that have very clear provisions for what happens if a co-founder leaves or is outed from the, the business. Uh, those are the things that A, you should be discussing with each other and B, you should be discussing with your lawyers because I can tell you as someone who's raised investment from venture capitalists, they're going to ask for those things in your shareholders agreements and they're going to force you to have those conversations. So um, it's best to have those at the beginning. And Kevin and I very clearly have an agreement that if the business ever threatens our marriage, we have very clear next steps on what would happen and that our marriage comes first, the business comes second. So I think that having those really honest conversations early on has been helpful for us to know that it'll never risk our marriage and that if anything were to happen to one of us, uh, we know that the business would be okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's all, those are all really good, really good points. Um, all right. Well, with that in mind, um, if you had, I'm going to try to end this podcast with a similar question for, for our guests. If you, given all the kind of experience and learnings you've had around money um, from all sorts of different angles when it comes to entrepreneurship, marriage, growing up, 
if you had a, a single life lesson, there's only one and you're, you're allowed to imp just magically impart upon everyone um, because it would improve their lives. What would you, what would you say? I would say that you will never become a wealthy person by collecting a paycheck and working for someone else. So, so it sounds cliche. Just elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're the CEO of Pepsi, that's not true. You're probably collecting a massive paycheck, but uh, I think it goes back to me saying my goal in life was to have a corner office and make a hundred thousand dollars. I've really changed my frame of mind to the best way to build wealth is number one, diversified revenue streams, whether that's, you know, a real estate investment or other sources of passive income in addition to a salary but also that, um, you know, making a 3% raise every year from your employer is never going to put you into the category of being able to build a lot of wealth for yourself. And so for me, the solution to that is entrepreneurship. To others, that might be building up other diversified revenue streams in addition to their salary through things like real estate investments or the stock market um, or side hustles or, you know, other things. Um, but I think, you know, collecting a paycheck and, and making your 3% raise a year, uh, that's kind of my life lesson is think beyond that as to how you can either build wealth for yourself by becoming an entrepreneur or, uh, diversify your revenue stream so that you're not just relying on that salary to, uh, to build your wealth for you. Awesome. Well, listen, I really, I want to really want to appreciate, uh, really want to thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and being willing to open up, uh, uh about this stuff. Cause it, we've touched on some pretty sensitive subjects. I think some areas that, you know, people would, might have trepidation of even asking, um, I guess in this, uh, in this circumstance. So, um, I really appreciate it. I think it's important for people like, for people who seem to have it all together, who like, you know, and have had a lot of experiences with, with, with money and maybe from the outside, Oh, that person's got everything together. If, if we're willing to open up about our, challenges or insecurities or, you know, fears. It just provides a lot of um, license and freeway for other people to start feeling better about their own insecurities and all that. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And I can assure you the one thing I've learned through my career is that nobody has it all together. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And thanks when you for think you me. do life, come well, send something else around to knock you on your ass and yeah, exactly. make you hum humble you again. 100%. Well, in the meantime, if anybody wants to check out the show notes, Willful, links to Willful, social media, Aaron's um, social media accounts will all be linked there. And uh, if you don't have a will in place, go get one and uh, check out Willful at willful.co. Thanks so much, Aaron, and we'll chat soon. Thank you for having me.